Before we come to God's word today, I would ask you to bow with me just once more for prayer for the week we all have coming up as Americans. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, as Kenton said, we do worship you today as the holy God, but the holy God who comes near to us. We thank you for your presence here by your spirit. We thank you for your presence here through the hearts of each believer here in this room. Lord, we recognize that uh, we are coming up on a national election next Tuesday. It's been a season uh, in our nation of contention, division, and for many, uh, fear. We know you are sovereign and you are good. We ask uh, for peace and healing in our land. But above all, Lord, I ask that you would remind us often by your spirit and through your word that our hope our confidence, our ultimate peace are not found in human governments as good and as useful as they can be, but they're found in you. And you have called us as your people to be salt and light in this world, to be agents of your grace and your love and your compassion, and yes, even your holiness. And we ask that you would help us, empower us, even during this season, to offer that same grace and love to our neighbors whoever that neighbor might be. We thank you and we trust you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, thank you for that. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was driving home from Indiana uh, with one of my sons, and we stopped at a roadside fast food restaurant, McDonald's, Wendy's, I don't really remember which one it was, and we went through the drive-thru, uh, which is what you do nowadays, and made our order. Um, plus, we just wanted to keep on the road. So I ordered, I think, a chicken sandwich and some fries. My son made his order. And then, as they always do, the attendant who was taking her order, you know, through the device said, would you like anything else? And I said, uh, first I said, no, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Make sure you throw a, a handful of ketchup packets in the bag because I like ketchup with my fries, right? Anybody, any other ketchup lovers here? I mean, fries almost make no sense without ketchup, right? So I specifically asked for a handful of ketchup packets in the bag. We went to the next window, we paid, and we got our bag of highly nutritious food and headed back out to the highway. Now, I was driving, so my son was managing the food. You know how you do that. So he sort of set out my chicken sandwich, and he put the fries where I could reach him. And I said, hey, hey, bud, just, put, just squirt out some ketchup on the fries there so I can reach him. And then he said back to me, uh, Dad, there's no ketchup in the bag. I said, what? No, what? what? No ketchup in the bag? I specifically, did you hear me? I said, please put a handful of ketchups in the bag. He goes, there's no ketchup in the bag. And we were already on the highway. I couldn't turn back to get the ketchup. And so I had to try to eat my fries without ketchup. I got through about five of them. I just said, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. These. Now, I'm exaggerating slightly, but I was not very happy about that. Another way to say it is, a lack of ketchup in my fast food bag produced or revealed a distinct lack of contentment in me. Now, we're wrapping up our series called Choosing Joy today. It's been nine weeks in Paul's letter to the Philippian church in our New Testament. Along the way, the apostle has talked about how he finds joy in, in prayer, joy in the gospel, joy in unity and service, joy in knowing Christ, joy in pressing on. And today he's talking about the joy of contentment. Now, let me read these verses to you. It comes toward the end of chapter 4, which is the last chapter in Philippians, verses 10 through 13. Let me read through these verses, explain a little bit, and then we're going to dive in. Paul writes, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. 
Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, what's he talking about here? Now, you remember, Paul is in prison, uh, most likely in Rome, a kind of house arrest. But Roman prisons in that time were not like prisons today. They had no obligation whatsoever to care for or provide for Roman prisoners. So the only way a prisoner in Rome could get food or clothing was if they had a friend or a family member willing to risk uh, their own safety to bring that to the place where the person was being held. And so what happened is the Philippian church eventually and recently had heard where Paul was, because word did not travel quickly in the ancient world. They didn't know where he was. They didn't know he was in prison. When they found out, they took an offering, a collection of money, and probably of some supplies, sent them with a young man named Epaphroditus to take them to Rome to deliver them to Paul. And Paul is writing this letter in part to thank the Philippian church for their love, for their generosity, and to let them know how Epaphroditus was doing, because you'll at another place in Philippians, he says he got sick and almost died in his effort to care for Paul. So he's writing them to thank them and to commend the young man Epaphroditus. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I am in need. Now the word need there is stronger than our English word. It means uh, severe poverty. It means uh, being destitute. So it's a strong word. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Again, here, the Greek word for content is a stronger word. It's autarkes, and it's the only place in the entire New Testament where Paul uses this exact word. And it refers to a kind of deep inner strength, a deep inner sufficiency and satisfaction that only comes from the indwelling of Christ himself. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now that last verse, verse 13, is very well known, very familiar. My guess is most of you know that verse and could probably recite it from some translation. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. We see it on posters for example. We see it in tattoos. I'm pretty sure maybe no one here has a tattoo of Philippians 4.13 somewhere on their body, but I've seen them before, younger people, all right? We see it on, in athletes. A professional boxer named Evander Holyfield years ago used to show up to his prize fights wearing a robe that had Philippians 4.13 monogrammed on it. This is right before he tried to beat up somebody. So in the strength of Christ, I'm going to try to knock you out, right? Football star Tim Tebow wore Philippians 4.13 on his eye black when he was in college. Can you see it there behind the face mask? Now, Tim Tebow is a great guy, a great Christian role model. My boys uh, had posters of him in their bedroom when they were growing up. But I think you can make a good case that Philippians 4.13 might be not only one of the most well-known verses, but one of the most misused verses in the entire New Testament. Spirit, uh, Philippians 4.13, I fear has been turned into a kind of uh, inspirational slogan, if you will. A kind of spiritual-sounding good luck charm. That we can accomplish anything. That we can achieve anything we want. Overcome any obstacle. We can win that game. We can ace that test. We can get that job. We can do anything because Jesus helps us and gives us strength. But my question is, is that what Paul, the apostle, who is writing from prison maybe facing the end of his earthly life, is that what he really means? 
Does he mean Jesus can help him run a marathon? Does he mean Jesus can help him score a touchdown? Maybe Paul means something else. I think he does. The first thing we see here is that Paul says, I know how to be content in plenty. Content in plenty. Now, I'm pretty sure that if you're honest, your reaction to that phrase is, uh, well, duh. I'm pretty good at being content in plenty, Pastor Brian. I can do that quite well. Um, For example, we think of Thanksgiving dinner. When our tables are piled high with more food than we can eat in a week. Sometimes it takes us two weeks to eat all that food that we pile up there on Thanksgiving dinner. We are more than content. But I want to push you to think a little deeper about what it means to be content in plenty. For example, over the last couple of weeks, I've uh, seen a series of advertisements and commercials about the same product. And I just noticed them. I see them on TV, see them online, see them on my computer, on the radio. And the ad is for a new kind of truck that's being manufactured. It's made by GMC and it's called the Hummer EV Super Truck. Anybody seen these ads? Anybody? Okay, I've been seeing them a lot. Uh, It's billed as the world's first zero emissions, zero limits super truck. First of all, it's all electric, but it has a thousand horsepower. It can accelerate from zero to 60 in three seconds. It has an infinity roof that can be taken off in sections, evidently so you can gaze at the stars while you're accelerating <laughs> to 60 in three seconds. It has a camera under the, under the carriage. It has a camera under the vehicle so you can watch inside what you're driving over, presumably other less super vehicles that you're just... <laughs> it has hands-free driving options, which sounds sort of terrifying to me. But here's the coolest thing in this truck. If you watch the ads, you know this is the coolest thing. It can, it can crab walk. You can, turn, you can turn a knob and the wheels turn a little sideways and it can, it can scoot like a snake sideways to get around things. Is that cool or what? Okay. Now, what does that commercial cause me to feel if I'm not careful? Now, my wife and I own four vehicles. Two, one for me, one for her, one, two for our boys. Two of them, two boys own their own. But we have four, right? But none of my cars can go sideways, right? None of them have an infinity roof. Uh, So here's the point. It's possible to have plenty and to be discontent. Because I want one to go sideways. The truth is, we are not very good at contentment as a people group. We live in a culture that systematically and relentlessly teaches us to be profoundly discontented. We see it around us all the time. We're taught to compare what we have with what someone else has. Or we're taught to compare what we have with what we could have. And comparison leads to discontentment, and discontentment robs us of joy. Here's what Paul says, again. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, destitute, and I know what it is to have the plenty, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, the word Paul uses for plenty here is literally in the Greek, superabundance. I mean, a boatload of plenty. So what's the secret of being content in plenty, in superabundance? Well, I think two spiritual qualities that Paul teaches about in other places in the New Testament. The first one is gratitude. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks, give thanks 
in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So what about giving thanks? What about gratitude is so important that Paul says this is God's will for you? Well, I think three reasons. First, gratitude requires a certain degree of humility. You just cannot be grateful and proud at the same time. You can't. It requires humility. Secondly, gratitude leads to worship. In fact, I would say that you cannot begin to worship until you have some sense of gratitude and thanksgiving in your heart. You can't worship without thanksgiving. And thirdly, gratitude opens our hearts to joy. Gratitude is the doorway to joy. And the truth is, a lack of gratitude will rob us of contentment, and that will always steal our joy. The second quality is generosity. Generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul writes, You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So why is generosity so important to God? Again, a whole bunch of reasons. First, generosity aligns us with God's own heart. Grace itself is a gift that emerges from the generous heart of God. The gospel itself is the result of the great generosity of God. Secondly, generosity blesses others. Uh, my wife, Lorene, uh, leads um, a ministry to uh, single moms at Chapel Street Church. Uh, there's a bunch of them, maybe 35 or 40 uh, women. And recently, one single mom from that group um, talked to my wife and wanted to give a substantial financial gift uh, and deliver it anonymously to another single mom she knew was going through a difficult season. And so she gave the gift to my wife. My wife was able to deliver it to this other single mom, and she got to see firsthand the blessing of generosity in someone's life. That's the way generosity works. It blesses. And thirdly, generosity also opens our hearts to joy. And the flip side of this, which I believe is very true, is that a lack of generosity, a lack of generosity in any area of our lives robs us of contentment and will always steal our joy. So Paul says he's learned the secret of being content in plenty. But secondly, he says he's also found the secret of being content in need. He says, I have been content in need. Now, uh, the no ketchup story uh, for my fries happened because I had to drive down to Lafayette, Indiana uh, to rescue that particular son. Now, what happened was he was on his way home on a Friday morning uh, to spend a weekend at home. He was coming home from Indianapolis where he lives with one of his brothers when his car had a problem, uh, more like uh, fell apart. He called me on his cell phone as he was driving and um, he said, uh, Dad, uh, I don't know if this is a big deal or not, but the car's making a funny sound. I said, well, what kind of sound? And he held his phone up to the, to the car, to the dashboard of the car so I could hear it. And I'm listening, and I can hear kind of a clacking, a little bit of a light clacking sound. Uh, and it sounds like it might be coming from the air duct or whatever. And he, I said, well, that doesn't sound too bad. Are any lights on on the dashboard? No. Is it running hot? No. I said, well, just, just keep going, and hopefully it'll be fine. You'll make it home. Two minutes later, literally two minutes later, my phone rings again. I'm thinking, uh-oh. I said, yeah. And he goes, I think we have a problem. I said, what's going on? He said, well, I heard a loud sound, louder than before. Uh, then I heard some bad scraping, and then the car lost power, and it won't move. Now, I'm not a mechanic, 
but that didn't sound good to me. What had happened, we later find out, found out, was the entire drive shaft under <laughs> this car had come apart and fallen down on the road, which is the scraping. And when it fell off, it tore out the transmission as well, which is why the car wouldn't move. So he had a need stuck on the side of the road outside Lafayette, Indiana, which meant I had a need, and neither one of us was very content. Now, our first reaction to that phrase, content and need, is likely, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, who is content when they're in need? Isn't that the very definition of need, to be discontent? No one's content when they're hungry. No one's content when they're cold or sick or broken down on the side of the road outside Lafayette, Indiana. Or are they? Paul says, verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now again, remember, Paul has been in is in prison when he's writing this, and scholars think he's been there for between two and three years. And not only, uh, so he does not have any food unless someone brings it to him. He has no new clothes unless someone brings them to him. So one can guess um, that Paul has had a lot of hungry days and cold nights in the time he's been in prison until Epaphroditus brought the gift from the Philippians. Yet he says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether living in plenty when I receive all these gifts or in want when I do not. So what's the secret of living in contentment when you're in need? Remember what Paul said back in chapter 1? We covered it a few weeks ago. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Remember what he said in chapter 3? We looked at a couple weeks ago again. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ to be found in him. What Paul is saying to us is that the secret of his contentment is Christ himself. He's content in plenty, and he's content in need because he's content in Christ. And that's the third point today, and I want to flesh this out for us. Back to the scripture, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. There it is. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. But now we hear it in its proper context. And the context here is not a football game. The context is not climbing Mount Everest because you want to accomplish something great. The context is having plenty or having nothing. The context is being comfortable and being in a situation of great suffering. Now, just a point of interest here. Uh, the verb to do... Um, as in, I can do all things, is not actually in the, the ancient Greek text. A better reading of this is actually, for all things, I have strength through the one strengthening me. Because Paul's emphasis is not on what he can do, what he can accomplish. It's on what Christ has already done, has already accomplished. <coughs> Excuse me, Paul's not talking about scoring a touchdown. He's talking about enduring almost unimaginable hardship and suffering, as well as experiencing the love and generosity of his dearest friends. And he experiences both with equal contentment. How? Well, Paul has already told us that the goal of his life was to know 
Christ. That's the goal of his life, that I would know Christ and be found in him. So how does knowing Christ supply this kind of strength and this kind of contentment? Let me mention five things. First, in Christ, Paul knows his identity does not change. In chapter 1, he said, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Jesus tells Paul who he is. Jesus tells Paul who he belongs to. Jesus tells Paul what the value of his life is and how much he's loved. His identity doesn't change. Secondly, in Christ, his purpose doesn't change. Again, in chapter 1, he said, only that in every way Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So whether in plenty or in want, whether free or in prison, Paul's purpose to proclaim Christ never changes. And by the way, we spoke earlier, uh, prayed earlier about the upcoming election. This same spiritual principle is true for us, that no matter who wins on Tuesday or however long it takes to determine who wins, no matter who wins, no matter who's in the White House, no matter, who, no matter which party is in power, these, none of these things change for us. That our ultimate hope, our ultimate confidence, our ultimate purpose does not change. And that's a great blessing for the people of God. Thirdly, in Christ, his eternal destiny doesn't change. He says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Better. Fourth, in Christ, his peace does not change. Last week, Pastor Jeff preached on this. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And fifthly, in Christ, his joy does not change. He says in verse 4 of chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. So the secret of contentment is not what I have. It's not even what I don't have. It's not what I can accomplish. It's not what I want to accomplish. It's not what I can do at all. It's based on what Christ has already done. What Christ has already given what Christ has already promised. So that whether I'm in need, whether you're in need, or whether you have plenty, whether I have plenty, whether I'm thriving and comfortable, or whether I'm suffering and alone, I am content. I can be content. Because in Christ, I have the strength to endure all things. That's what this verse is about. Now, why is it so important? Why did Paul need to say this specifically to the Philippian church and then through them, to us nearly 2,000 years later? Well, because we don't always live in plenty. We're so used to it, we assume everybody has plenty, that we're always going to have it. We aren't always going to have it. We don't always win the game. Sometimes the biopsy is positive. Sometimes the wheels fall off. We're stranded outside Lafayette, Indiana. Paul wants the Philippians to know, and he wants us to know, how to be content in any and every situation how to be content in plenty, and how to be content in need. Because we have the strength that only Christ can give. A couple summers ago, um, I spent 17 days in Turkey and Africa visiting some of our Serve the World partners as, in their ministries in that part of the world. Uh, one of the people I met, I met lots of uh, just amazing people, many of whom you'll never hear about until heaven someday, but one of the people I met was a pastor named Fred Wangwa, who serves as the chaplain at the Cure Hospital in Mbale, 
Uganda, and we as a church have been involved with Cure Hospitals over the, over the years, and he's, the, he's the, the chaplain at the one in Uganda. He's also the pastor of a small church in the same city, which is Mbale, uh, and you have to drive about 15 minutes on a dirt and muddy road uh, even to get to his small church, which at the most can seat maybe 75 people if they're all crammed in. I had a chance to preach there one Sunday morning when I was there. And from that little church, Pastor Fred has started 10 other churches in the region, at least 10, and trained all 10 pastors to lead those churches. And about three weeks ago, I got an email from Pastor Fred. This is he and I before I had to leave uh, to head back in that little plane. Three weeks ago, he emailed me, and he told me that he was getting ready to start yet another church in a Muslim area of his, uh, of his region. Here's, I want you to listen to this carefully. I'm reading it to you word for word, the email he sent me. Hello, Pastor Brian. I've been thinking about you. Hope all is well with you and your family. We are fine here. Listen, we are fine here. The pandemic has ravaged our community and lives in many ways. We are struggling with hunger, loss of jobs for many people, loss of income, and loss of social connections. The Lord has used this season to bring many people to himself through my ministry in a new location. It is amazing how Muslims have come to faith in Jesus since I started taking the good news to this community. We're going to have our first Sunday worship service this Sunday under a shade tree provided by a generous brother. Please, please pray that the Lord provides land for the church, that he protects the converts who face persecutions of many kinds from their Muslim relatives, and that God will give me boldness to continue declaring his word without fear of physical harm. God bless you, and hope to hear from you soon. Fred. Did you hear that? Pastor Fred is starting a new church for former Muslims who are now following Jesus in a poverty-stricken country in the middle of a pandemic with a very real chance of persecution and violence with no money, no building, under a tree. And he's grateful. And he's joyful. And he's excited. I think that's what Paul's talking about. That's what it means to be content in any and all circumstances. So I wonder where, where we are today. Where are you today? In plenty? Many of us are. Well, in plenty, we can be content through gratitude and generosity. In fact, this is the only way to be content in plenty. Or maybe you're in need in some way. Well, you can experience this contentment too because you have him who gives you strength. That's Paul's word for us today. It's God's word for us today. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, how we thank you for your word today, this ancient letter that we've been in for over two months now, an ancient letter that's so contemporary in so many ways. Along with Paul's teaching, help us to know you, to anchor our identity, our purpose, our hope, and our joy in who you are and what you have done. And may we, along with the apostles, know your strength that enables us to be content, satisfied in both plenty and in want. In Jesus' name we pray.